It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. All right, boys and girls, we are back with another edition of the Ben Dominich Podcast brought to you by Fox News. You can check out all of our podcasts at foxnewspodcast.com. I hope you will rate, review, subscribe to this one, and share it with a friend if you find it of interest. Today, I have a conversation with Jonathan Turley. He is the J.B. and Morris C. Shapiro Professor of Public Interest Law, Director of the Environmental Law Advocacy Center, Executive Director of the Project for Older Prisoners all at the George Washington University, right here in Washington, D.C. You don't get to hear all of those big profile names uh, about Jonathan Turley when he appears on Fox News all the time. But the point is just that he's a very accomplished law professor, someone who actually you know, participates within the ac- academic world and someone who has been very aggressive in standing up for his own views, even in an environment that is very... Uh, unfortunately, unwelcoming of opposing views when it comes to tolerating anything other than the leftist dominance of today. That's actually our first topic of conversation uh, because I think it's far more important in the long term than some of the different issues that are being dealt with when it comes to former President Trump, though we get into that as well. Those are obviously significant questions politically and legally. But I do think that when when it comes to analyzing the ability of someone like Jonathan Turley to be able to survive in an atmosphere where everyone is really surrounding him, trying to get him out of that type of tenured position, is very significant. Jonathan Turley, coming up next. The Will Cain Show is now dropping five episodes a week. Join Fox and Friends weekend host Will Cain as he tackles the latest headlines from his unique perspective, along with thought-provoking interviews with leading figures and live calls from viewers and listeners. Listen wherever you download your favorite podcasts. The brilliant Jonathan Turley is my guest today. Thank you so much, sir, for taking the time to join me. Uh, I'm so curious about so many things that are going on. Uh, within the legal arguments surrounding uh, former President Trump, and I will get to those in a moment. But first off, I wanted to just ask you, I think that Fox viewers are very familiar with your voice and with your perspective on things, but they may not know as much about your own background. So I wanted to sort of get what, you know, what is the point where someone like you is able to uh, survive and thrive in the uh, uh, vaunted halls of academia that where uh, where views like your own uh, contrarian views in particular uh, seem to uh, have attracted so much fire in recent years well ben thank you very much for having me uh, i do get that question a lot because it's becoming a lot lonelier in academia I never really thought when I started teaching over three decades ago that we would ever get to this point in higher education. Uh, The level of intolerance uh, and the lack of diversity of viewpoints uh, on our campuses is something I never imagined would happen, uh, quite frankly. it's, I, I'm quite confident that I would not 
get an academic position today. If I were Ooh. not tenured, I probably wouldn't be able to retain the one I had if I wasn't tenured. And it's alarming. I wrote a long academic piece on this uh, for one of the Harvard journals uh, a couple years ago. Uh, many universities have largely purged their faculty uh, of not just conservatives and libertarians, but dissenting voices. Uh, it is now an academic echo chamber. And it hasn't diminished, even with the criticism of this intolerance on our campuses. Uh, faculties are continuing that pattern. They are now largely composed of faculty from the left to the far left, and they view that as diversity. Mm -hmm. You know, I think one of the things that is so stunning about this, I, I just by the fact that there was this debate going on over the past week to two weeks about the definition of, of wokeness. It prompted me to go back and watch the 2016 video with Nicholas Christakis and the, and the whole scene around him, you know, the, the students, uh, you know, really screaming at him at certain points, uh, but essentially demanding an apology over an email that his wife had sent about Halloween costumes. That's seven years ago. Now, it seems like to me, this, this whole thing went from being something that Many who are ideologically uh, simpatico with myself were at the time saying, look, this is a campus problem and there's always campus problems. There's always been, you know, radicalism there. But it feels like that was something that was really exported into being a concern for Americans outside of the academy. You know, people not in your position and people lacking the protection of tenure uh, in their jobs. I'm curious as to your perspective on that world. Basically, what was the thing that came out of this academic cohort over the past, you know, decade plus that has now uh, gone into the HR departments, gone into the corporate sphere? Uh, what do people need to know about that and how to navigate that world? Yeah, I'm actually finishing a book right now on, uh, in part on this subject uh, because it is a surprise to me that we have severed what I consider to be uh, really unbreakable bonds, particularly in academia, towards free speech and academic freedom. And part of it is a sort of an anti-free speech movement that has swept over the country, but it started on our campuses. And many of these academics have been successful in treating speech as harm. And so their argument is that speech is harmful, even without overt acts. And this really plays into this whole notion that there are toxic ideas out there and that they harm people. And once you define them as harmful, it then opens up a whole bunch of avenues for you to silence speech. And what is really disturbing is that faculty have either supported that or have remained silent. There's, I've never seen the level of fear and intimidation that I do today among faculty. I run a fairly large legal blog, and it is one of the more popular sources for academics. So they send me a lot of these incidents. It's hard for me to keep up with them, but they send these to me anonymously. Many of these are senior faculty, tenured faculty. 
They want me to put it on the blog. They want the world to know, but they don't raise it themselves. And the reason is that the this mob has become very efficient at chilling and silencing people. You know, what they do with academics is they take away everything that fulfills an intellectual life, everything that brought some of us into higher education. So you, if you get tagged, if you get targeted, uh, you, they, you're, you're basically blacklisted from conferences, publications, uh, even committees, even panels in your own school. All of that is gone. And faculty just don't want to risk that. A lot of these senior faculty are in their 50s, 60s, even 70s, and they they want to have a, a, a fulfilling career uh, in, in the years that remain. So they remain quiet. They remain silent. And the result is that the surveys are actually quite consistent. There have been about a dozen surveys at different schools across the country, including national surveys showing that a majority of faculty self-censor and are afraid to speak openly. Now, the key about that is that most of the faculty are liberal today. So Mm -hmm. even though a lot of conservatives and dissenters have been removed from faculties, the faculty that remains, the faculty that's actually allowed that to happen, themselves privately admit that they're afraid to say anything in class. Mm -hmm. And that feeling is even worse for students. And I confront faculty all the time with this across the country when I speak, saying, you know, what have we become? You know, we have surveys showing that our students are afraid, that a majority of our students are afraid to speak in class. That's an indictment of the entire academy. And yet when you raise this directly in faculty meetings or with colleagues, they just shrug and they just say, well, uh, there's nothing I can do about it. What does the restoration of a small L liberal uh, higher academic experience in America look like? How do we get that? Because to me, having come up kind of when I did, I feel like I'm one of the last people to have gone through a college experience and kind of enjoyed that in the (laughs) early 2000s. And it seems like it's only become more and more illiberal ever since. And well, yeah. I feel like there was value to that. There was a lot of value to that. There were there were really good things that came out of that, uh, I think, personally. But uh, but now I, I just don't know whether we'll, we'll be able to get back to it or not. Well, Ben, I feel sorry for people going to college today. I honestly do. I have four kids uh, in higher education now. Uh, one's about to head to college. And I really – I'm really sad about – what they're going to find. When I went to University of Chicago, I was thrilled by the diversity of opinions. I never sat down with a Republican. I grew up in a very liberal political family in Chicago. I never actually sat down, I don't think, with a Republican, certainly not one my age. I might have talked to a couple of my parents' friends. I, I knew they existed. I just had never really spoken to one. Uh, But suddenly I found myself surrounded by Republicans, Trotskyites, socialists. It was just an amazing experience. I loved every minute of it. I really wanted to hear different views, even though I didn't agree with them. I want to know why people thought that way. You just don't have that. Uh, Our campuses have become academic echo chambers. And uh, that's what 
we now sell as higher education. I've been saying publicly that our last line of defense for free speech in higher education may be state universities. It's going to be very hard to regain a lot of ground in private universities. You saw that sort of with Stanford. Even in the most outrageous, disgraceful canceling of a federal judge, the dean issued a letter that was great. It, it, it supported free speech, but it lacked one thing. She refused to hold the students accountable. Mm-hmm. So these students knew what the policy was. They went in and they disrupted the event. And there will be no consequences. Instead, she's ordered mandatory free speech training for everyone, including the victims. <laughs> well, that's not the solution. But our state universities and colleges hold the greatest hope for free speech because they are subject to the First Amendment. The court system can help us protect free speech. And we might be able to build around that, uh, this notion that if people want diversity of opinions, if they want to actually be able to hear opposing views, they might have to just focus on state universities. Let's shift to the, uh, uh, the conversation that's obviously dominating the news cycle has been the focus really of the past week. Uh, and obviously it's something that you've weighed in on in a number of different capacities. Um, I am curious as to your perception of a couple of different questions. One, you know, do you believe that the president is actually, go- the former president, uh, Donald Trump, is going to be arrested uh, as a result of this case in New York? Uh, do you believe that that's uh, an overstepping of uh, the the bounds. I mean, no former president has experienced anything like this. Uh, and do you believe that it is a, a legal, legally tenable position uh, for the uh, New York prosecutor, Alvin Bragg, to, uh, to actually occupy? Well, let me take that in reverse order, because the last question says something about the earlier questions. And that is, um, I believe that this is unabashedly a political prosecution. I don't feel that way about Mar-a-Lago. There are some potentially valid criminal things to investigate there. We can talk about whether they warrant a charge, but those are conventional allegations. The Department of Justice loves obstruction of justice uh, and false statements as, as crimes. What Alvin Bragg is doing is unadulterated political prosecution. Uh, He has given Trump a case positive uh, for his long claim that the criminal justice system is being weaponized against him. In this case, it is. I mean, the reason I say that is because I think this may be unprecedented, this bootstrapping of, of a misdemeanor under this particular law to effectively litigate a federal claim. That's the only way most of us can see a chance to even prosecute the case because the misdemeanor under the New York law has a statute of limitations of only two years. That ran, obviously, a long time ago. Um, the only way you can get it above a misdemeanor and be able to try it as within a statute of limitations is to hook it into a felony. Well, there isn't any felony except the one, uh, unless he has some surprise for us, except the federal election felony. But that's a felony that the Department of Justice declined to bring for good reason. Uh, It's a very difficult 
criminal case to make. Uh, and in this case, I think it'll be even more difficult than failed cases like the John Edwards case, where uh, the Department of Justice tried this. Um, but putting aside the lack of legal merit, there's also the way this case developed. Uh, you know, the Department of Justice declined to prosecute the federal side of this. Uh, even Bragg's predecessor did not move forward on this. Bragg himself threw a flag on this, and then two of his prosecutors resigned, and they conducted a public campaign against Bragg. One of them did something that I think is unbelievably unprofessional and improper. Uh, This former prosecutor used the investigation, which was still ongoing, to write a book about an individual who hadn't been charged, let alone <laughs> someone who was actually still in investigation, in an investigation by his former office. Bragg himself correctly said, what the heck are you doing? Mm-hmm. I mean, you, you, you can't do this. But he was heralded uh, by the media. They, they lionized by many lawyers for doing something that is breathtakingly improper. Uh, And it worked. I mean, uh, Bragg caved to the pressure. So will he be indicted? It's hard to say because the politics is changing. This is a political prosecution. It was pushed by the politics of the moment. And in some ways, Bragg, I think, was counting on that even if the case failed, he would be credited uh, Mm -hmm. for trying. I mean, after all, any prosecutor can bring a viable criminal case. It takes a really dedicated, uh, true believer to bring one that's invalid. Uh, So many people would have applauded him for the effort. But now a lot of Democrats are actually criticizing the case, but particularly objecting that it's helping Trump. And that may have given Bragg pause because Trump is going up in the polls. uh, Biden is going down. And it's becoming very clear that a lot of Democrats are telling Bragg, what are you doing? I mean, you, you're undermining our chances for 2024. You know, I think that the the politics of this are so unpredictable. Just the, the politics of the Mar-a-Lago were unpredictable, too. Uh, you know, at the time, I thought that it would both coalesce uh, Donald Trump's support, but that it would be potentially negative for Republicans in the midterms because it would return the focus to him uh, in a way when... You know, they had obviously been leaning into inflation and leading into uh, border issues and the like as being the priority to take to the American people. And instead, it became more of an election about Trump and particularly about his claims regarding 2020. Um, I'm not sure that it totally matches up with that. You know, that you can debate it um, looking backwards. Do you have a particular crystal ball to predict how this uh, matter would play going forward, assuming that Bragg at the end of the day is boxed in too much and really does have to proceed with this, even if Democrats are in his ear saying, you know, doing this helps Trump. Well, I I think it's going to get pretty wicked pretty fast. Uh, I think that the prosecution is likely to extend beyond the election. So uh, this election could end up becoming and I think Trump would invite this, a referendum on this and other cases. I've said for years that I believe a president can self-pardon. And I've written in a couple of columns that this coming election could become one over self-pardons. You know, both Biden and Trump face potential criminal 
charges. The Department of Justice has long said it will not charge a sitting president. But if they charge Trump before the election, uh, the public may decide to sort of defy the establishment of the media by electing him, knowing that he'll self-pardon. Um, it's going to create an unpredictable factor here. Trump was elected in 2016 as an anti-establishment figure. He was elected on far less than what he has today. The fact that Bragg is trying to indict him on this uh, really does fulfill that narrative. You know, it's like the old joke uh, of the doctor telling the patient, you're really not paranoid. People really are out to get you. Well, you know, you know, here he's been saying they're weaponizing the criminal justice system, and then Bragg does that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it could end up sucking the oxygen out of the room uh, of the election. It also could make it very difficult for people to run against him. I think that that's one of the reasons I think that in some ways Trump seems to be goading I mm-hmm. uh, uh, Bragg. You know, I, I've been very I've been critical of some of his postings, which I think are really you know, are unnecessarily inflammatory. I think that we have to be very careful about images like baseball bats next to the head of, mm-hmm. of Bragg and stuff like that. Uh, but I almost suspect that he's goading uh, Bragg, that this, you know, of the three torpedoes in the water, New York, Atlanta, uh, and the uh, Mar-a-Lago business, this is the one Trump was hoping would hit first. I mean, because mm-hmm. it's a dud. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that in many ways, maybe his, these rather inflammatory postings might be an effort to make sure Bragg does go through with it. Um, one question, just because it was something that obviously Joe Rogan raised it, but people have been saying it online uh, for quite some time uh, in the in the lead up to this. You know, Wait, this is not the Joe Rogan show. I thought this. Was... <laughs> <laughs> no, we haven't. We I, I I haven't had Jamie pull anything up yet. Um, <laughs> no, uh, so, but let me ask. He brought up the point that isn't this something that politicians have been doing for a very long time? Uh, meaning that it, politicians or political uh, allies of politicians have been paying people off in certain ways over the years in a lot of different manners. My favorite example of this, by the way, is when the Republican uh, operators in Ohio, uh, back when Warren Harding was running for office, uh, sent uh, sent one of his uh, more prominent affairs uh, and her husband on a, on a lengthy overseas tour of Asia trip uh, so that they would be out of town when the journalists came to town so that nobody could talk to her. Um, I mean, come on. You know, this has been happening for a long time in lots of different ways. The, the exact nature of trying to determine whether something counts as a campaign finance issue or not, though, seems to me to be very vague uh, and, and ill-defined. Is that something where there's a need for more clarity uh, or is it a situation where basically – you know, there's there's so much that's gray area here. It's really hard to pin down what is a campaign donation and what is not. Yeah, Ben, I think it's it's the latter. I mean, the I, I was critical of this theory when the Department of Justice was looking at it years ago and and wrote about the John Edwards case. The Edwards case, in many ways, was stronger than the Trump case. You know, there you had an affair; it produced a child. You had a campaign operative and campaign donors uh, paying the money. Uh, it's it was a, a tighter narrative 
in that sense. And it failed. Uh, the reason is that you have to show that the campaign was the, or the election was the sole purpose of spending this money. Well, when you have a celebrity or high profile person who's married, there are lots of obvious reasons why you want to hush up an affair. Mm -hmm. uh, in this case, Trump has even more reason, right? Because he was the host of a leading reality show. Uh, he was obviously one of the biggest names in the country. Uh, he was someone who would stay in television. And by the way, television contracts have provisions that negate your contract if you bring a disrepute upon mm -hmm. uh, the, the parent company. So there's lots of reasons why he would have uh, or his associates paid this money. Um, I don't think you could possibly uh, make out this claim uh, beyond a reasonable doubt, which is why the Department of Justice didn't pursue it. You know, I think <laughs> I know this is a silly thing to say, but I think you could make a, a much better case that the decisions by Twitter and Facebook to uh, ban the to censor the New York Post were a much more sizable donation in kind to a certain <laughs> campaign. Um, <laughs> but but uh, I, I, I take your point. Uh, let's let's go out on this. It seems to me that the of the various issues, you know, going on here, the overall one that really concerns me is that this story uh, and those uh, uh, those other missiles that are those other, um, uh, you know, uh, different trajectories that are going at uh, the president, uh, the former president, uh, are all play into a an overall narrative that I have heard from many Republican friends um, that basically goes, we can't trust any of these people. We can't trust law enforcement. We can't trust the courts. We can't trust judges. We can't trust the DOJ. We can't trust the FBI. We can't trust, you know, any of the members of the deep state, essentially. And that to me is very concerning because it's one thing to say, these people are incompetent uh, or, you know, the CIA gets WMD wrong or, you know, th things like that, or they, there are mistakes that are made. You know, you, you bomb, you drone the wrong people, you know, that kind of thing. That's one aspect of failure. A different aspect of failure is when these entities are viewed as having been turned against the people or the people's representatives. I don't know the path out of that. You know, you talk about the, the problems of one a branch of American institutions when it comes to higher ed, that seems to me um, a, a much more hopeful situation than the circumstances that American law enforcement and these uh, entities find themselves in today. How can we actually restore faith in them going forward among so many Americans who feel like they've been weaponized against the candidates they support? Yeah, I, I think that's a tough question because of the erosion that we've seen there is a basis for distrust. I mean, you had FBI officials who were fired because of bias. Uh, you've had a number of investigations, uh, like the Russian collusion investigation, which was hatched by the Clinton campaign. I mean, they, they've now admitted, they denied it earlier, but they now admit that they funded the Steele dossier and uh, that those allegations were uh, found to be unsustainable by the special counsel. They're continuing to be under investigation by a special counsel. 
Uh, so there's reason for people to be distrustful. You have a media that has embraced advocacy journalism and is being rather open in its bias. And then finally, you've got Congress where Democrats are opposing even an investigation into uh, the role of the FBI. I just testified on this and agencies into censorship of American citizens. So they don't even want to investigate the extent to which the government engaged in that conduct. All of that's going to fuel these doubts. The way that we restore it is with transparency. Um, I'm very hopeful that the House uh, will, in fact, investigate the full extent of this of this conduct uh, so that there cannot be any deniability as to the role played by the government on censorship and other problems. Uh, we need that. And it looks like they are proceeding in that direction. There's going to be an accounting in the election. Uh, you know, the establishment, particularly the media, still doesn't get it. You know, uh, I wrote before the 2016 election a column in USA Today when Trump had just announced. And I wrote a column saying this guy could win. And the reason uh, I said that is that I was actually traveling through Alaska. Mm. And obviously, that's a very good jurisdiction for Trump. But what I was hearing was just fascinating. It's not that they liked Trump. It's that... They viewed him as in some way sort of authentically inauthentic. You know, they they sort of viewed him as we know what we're going to get with him. That even mm -hmm. if you think that he's sort of a television, you know, guy who's who's shilling for products, you know what you're going to get from Donald Trump. And that was enough because they really were after the media and the establishment. Well, all of these years, I think, of biased reporting and the, what the FBI has done have perfected the case for him. That's the reason I think this is going to be a wild ride coming mm -hmm. up to the 2024 election. Jonathan Turley, thank you so much for taking the time to join me today. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you. More of the Ben Dominish podcast right after this. I'm sure you've been paying attention after the past couple of weeks to uh, the conflict between the current governor of Florida Ron DeSantis and Donald Trump, the former president. And I do think that there are some interesting things to take away from it, but I would also encourage you all to not jump to any early conclusions about this 2024 cycle or what's going to come out of it necessarily. Look, from my perspective, one of the things that I think we have done in prior cycles is overanalyze the early interactions of various candidates. I mean, the idea that Scott Walker should have dropped out as early as he did in 2016 is ludicrous if you particularly pay attention to the fact that, you know, so many other candidates had a real shot at the lead. Um, you know, the idea that we forget, for instance, about the role that Ben Carson played in elevating Donald Trump, enabling him to kind of block off other people from running against him. But I do want to point out a couple of things that I think are very interesting. It does seem to me that there is a definite split in the national conservative media over their depiction of this race. And I'll just focus on all the different you know, journals and media entities that are out there currently. These are not always indicative of where the voters or the readers and the consumers of these media entities will end up. 
But I certainly think it's fair to say that, you know, looking away from the television department, you have, you know, entities like the Wall Street Journal, the New York Post, entities that had been generally, in the sense of the Post in particularly, open to Donald Trump's rise, certainly taking a harder look at him, being more antagonistic. You also had entities that were strongly antagonistic to Donald Trump, National Review, Daily Wire, you know, certainly something like Glenn Beck and, and the associated people with him at the Blaze. You had also, I would say, very pro-Trump entities like the Daily Caller, Breitbart, obviously, being part of that mix, Human Events, uh, and a number of other populist entities that tried to boost uh, the former president when he ran the first time around. What I think is important to understand is that all of these different media entities you know, have different audiences. They have people who are engaged on different levels. And when you look uh, broadly, they don't have a lot of influence. You know, uh, This is nothing against the different people who I know who work at these media entities, but the point is that their audience is numbered in the tens of thousands, generally, for the kind of pieces that they write, as opposed to being in you know the hundreds of thousands or the millions in the case of either talk radio or television. One thing, though, that I do think is important is that they can provide the seed for various narratives that take hold in the broader population, regardless of whether people have actually ingested that media, paid attention to that media or not. One thing that I do think is clear in the early going here is that this is viewed as a two-man race even though one of them isn't even in the race. People are not paying attention to the fact that there are other candidates running. They don't particularly care about them. They view them as a sideshow. When it comes to the early polling, there's a public opinion a poll uh, just out uh, this week that looks at uh, the early stakes in Iowa and New Hampshire. It's very clearly viewed as a two-man race between the Florida governor, Ron DeSantis, and former President Trump. From my own perspective, I think that this is uh, a little bit exclusionary. I think that there are people who could potentially rise up and, you know, have a little bit of something to say, maybe make some waves. But to the degree that this is already isolated as a two-person race, that's actually something that's very bad for the former president. And I don't say that out of any personal bias or belief that he shouldn't win. In fact, as I've told multiple audiences uh, you know, in speeches across the country, I've said that, you know, if the election was held today, I would assume Donald Trump would win the nomination. But I do think that it's dangerous to have this kind of of coalescing around a certain opponent candidate this early. The reason obviously being, it took months for there to be any kind of coalescing in 2016. And many people argued after the fact that if you know, Ted Cruz, Marco Rubio had potentially, you know, had a coalescing around them that happened earlier in the cycle, they might have been able to fend off Trump. I'm not sure that's true. I think that, you know, one of the things that's very interesting to me is that if you look at other polling, the governor of Florida, Ron DeSantis, actually performs better among people who value winning more, value electability more, who value, uh, you know, moderation, who are independent voters. In other words, he is not necessarily going in the same lane as someone like Ted Cruz did the last time around. 
Ted Cruz, in fact, you know, was someone who overperformed among people who described themselves as the most conservative voters in the electorate. Now it's Donald Trump who has those voters. Personally, I think this is a very interesting development. One will be seeing play out over the coming months. But I think you would be wrong to make any kind of assessment about what is going to happen in the upcoming nomination battle before we've seen any of these people on stage together. In fact, until they do, everything to me seems premature. I would remind you that at the same stage when it came to the 2008 battle, Rudy Giuliani was the one overperforming by almost 20 points in every public poll. I'm Ben Dominich. You're listening to another edition of the Ben Dominich Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. We'll be back soon to dive back into the fray. Listen ad-free with a Fox News Podcast Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts. And Amazon Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on the Amazon Music app. chair and join me, Rachel Campos Duffy, and me, former U.S. Congressman Sean Duffy, as we share our perspective on the discussions happening at kitchen tables across America. Download from the kitchen table, the Duffy's at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you download podcasts.